Our Bibles are open to Genesis this evening, and that's chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45 in God's Word. And then I want to read a few verses in chapter 50 of the same book. Genesis number 45. Genesis number 50. And then our text scripture is in the book of Romans tonight. One verse. And it's in Romans number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Genesis chapters number 45 and number 50. Lest I be remiss later, let me express my appreciation and my gratitude to you for your kindness to me. And uh, my heart has been blessed this week for having had the opportunity of being in this place with you, experiencing the reality of the Lord's presence. And I say that sincerely. I I don't know when I've personally enjoyed a series of meetings any more than I have this week. I've just uh, received what my needy heart was in need of, and I'm grateful. I was thinking there a moment ago when you were blessing us with the music. I, I said to the Lord as I was expressing gratitude and I was thanking him for his presence, his power, his reality in this place. And I thought I, the Lord permits me, graciously permits me to be all oh, in over 60 churches a year. Last year, I think about 70 churches. I'm in conferences some and I'm in a couple churches a week often. And I say that to say this, I was just sitting there thinking, I I do not go to any place in this country where I receive and benefit and bless for the music like I am here. And I don't want to say that to reflect on anywhere else, but I want to say that to praise Him and to commend you. And I tell you, I'm blessed. I'm a beggar when I get around, you know, something good going on and uh, preacher, he's been kind to me. I was going to say some th- something nice about him, but he picked on me there, so I'm going <laughs> to drop all of that I was going to say about him personally. But uh, uh, I heard someone bragging on some of his sermons, and I acted real pitiful today, and he brought me some of them, so I'm going to get me some new sermons to preach, and I get around where he hadn't been. But uh, I... I brag on your on your music everywhere I go, and I, I took a tape home, and I said to my wife, I, my wife's name Josephine, I call her Jill. I said, Joe, won't you listen to this? And I tell you, she said to me the other day, she said they got them, they got in new tapes of music, <laughs> and I said, well, I think they're getting one. So uh, we're we're blessed just to you know to hear you even after I leave here. I got some tapes last year that had some music on it. Too. So I, I just want to tell you, I want to brag on your music, I want to praise God for it, and I want to express my appreciation. Well, I'm homesick, you'll understand if I'm in a hurry. preacher asked me if I was going to drive home tonight, I said, no, I quit that. It takes me eight hours nearly to get home, and I used to do that. I mean, a few years ago, if I had seven or eight hours, even ten, I'd take off, but something's happened to me in, in the last few years, and I, I can't... Uh, I don't really know what it is. I was reading the verse where someone in the Bible said they was well stricken in years. Uh, and years has a way of striking you, amen. <laughs> so 
long about three or four o'clock in the morning, I got to pull over. I headed out from Birmingham going home some time ago, and I got to Cave City, Kentucky, three in the morning, and I saw a motel light said, you know, room still available. So I said, I went in and called my wife and said, it's about as far as I can get. I'll sleep a little and get on in. So, but I do, I am going home in the morning. I've been gone three weeks. I was home Thursday through Saturday, but my wife wasn't there. She had left after I left and her flight didn't get her back home till 1030 on last Saturday night. And I was already in Chattanooga. And so I'm homesick. I'll be honest about it. Uh, we've been together for what coming up on 42 years, but uh, we're still on our honeymoon, and I, I'm homesick, and I'm looking forward to getting home. So you'll understand that I'm in a hurry tonight. And uh, some of you last night, I, you must have thought, man, he's never going to get done. I, I take my glasses off, as you notice, and last night I, I take my watch off, and I couldn't find my watch last night. <laughs> And he was listening so well, and uh, the Lord was so he, in, in, in control of the meeting, I just about forgot where I was at, what I was doing. So I'll try to keep my eye tonight, uh, not only on the watch, but uh, watch what I'm doing. I heard of a preacher, he got up on Sunday morning to preach, and he had a big bandage here, a big band-aid, and he noticed people, you know, they're sort of looking and wondering, he thought it might help, you know, if he would tell them why he's got this big bandage here on his, on his face. And he said this morning while I was shaving, I was thinking of my sermon and I cut my face. Well, after his sermon, someone had passed a note to him through a usher and he took the note on the way home and he read it and he said, the note says, we suggest that the next time you think of your face and cut your sermon. <laughs> <laughs> They got a way of getting to you, amen. <laughs> so I'll uh, try to do that tonight. Genesis 45 is, uh, I've written a, myself a note here that reminds me that it's one of the most moving scenes in all the Bible. With enormous <clears throat> emotional release, Joseph comes before his brothers. And he reveals himself to him. Chapter 45 and verse 1, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. He cried, Cause every man to go out from men. There stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known to his brethren. He wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. Joseph said to his brethren, <clears throat> I'm Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. That's our word for terror. They were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve your posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. I don't miss this. You sold me, but God sent me. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh 
and Lord of all of his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste and go up to my father and say to him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it's my mouth that speaketh unto you. You shall tell my father of all of my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall haste and bring down my father hither. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brethren and wept upon them. Into Egypt, and some years now has passed, and here they are before Joseph again. Chapter number 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph would peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us of all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said to them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear you not, I will nourish you and your little ones and He comforted them and spake kindly unto them. You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. I want us to think about that little expression for a little while tonight. God meant it for good. In the eighth chapter of the book of Romans... And uh, perhaps the best known verse in the chapter and in, in, in the entire book of Romans and uh, probably one of the best known in the entire Bible. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Someone that I have great respect for his insight in the scriptures, made this statement about Romans 8.28. He said it's one of the best known verses in all of the Bible, and yet one of the least understood. One of the best known in all of the Bible, and yet one of the least understood. I pondered that statement coming from a man of his caliber. And my thought was, could that be a fact? Though this verse is quoted by many of God's people, I venture to say that if you've uh, been a Christian long and, and a student in the Word, 
You can quote the verse, at least you perhaps do it in part. And could it be that we we know this verse is one of the best known verses, and yet it's one of the least understood? I preached a series when I was in the pastorate. My style of preaching was just, if I was not working the way through a book, that's basically what I did, and I miss doing that now. We just take a book and just sort of work our way through it. We try to find out what the what the, the passage was looking at was saying and, and apply it to us, find our content for our sermon in that context. And that's my understanding, how the Bible is written, the way we're to expound it. But often, instead of working our way through a book, I would take a, a subject. And, and, and most often, the subject would be in a series form. And I was thinking this afternoon, as the Lord had brought my attention to this truth, it's part of a series of sermons, about 12 of them, I believe they were. And I entitled the series, Standing on the Promises. We just came to some of the outstanding promises in God's Word and came Sunday morning after Sunday morning before God's people, and we would just try to stand on that promise. Make that promise in God's Word, God's Word to our hearts. So we could just claim it. And I repeat, there's about a dozen of them, but the first one, before we looked at the promises and tried to stand on the promises, the first sermon that I preached, I entitled it, Before we stand on the promise, I entitled that sermon, Understanding the Promise, and brought an entire message on how do we approach it, how how do we understand so that we can stand on the promise. We came to this promise. I recall saying that someone had commented, Dr. Torrey, Dr. Ari Torrey, the late Dr. Torrey, Dr. Torrey quoted uh, Romans 8.28 by suggesting that it's a soft pillow for a weary head and heart. Another that I <clears throat> quoted, he called it God's awesome promise. Another says that perhaps it's the most glorious promise in all of the scriptures. Romans 8.28. I entitled the sermon that day, God's Promise for Hard Times. God's Promise for Difficult Times. In fact, as I thought about it again this afternoon, just pondering and looking at it, he seemed to suggest to me that it's not only a promise just or hard times, it's a promise for all times. His anytime promise. His all-time promise. I wonder tonight if you would just prayerfully think with me for a few minutes as we try to stand on Romans 8.28. I want to make five simple suggestions about standing on the promise that I'm calling tonight, His promise for difficult, hard times. But before we do that, uh, let's try to understand for a moment. Look at what it's not saying before we look at what it is saying. See, this is not a promise for all people. It may not be a promise for everyone that's in this room. I heard a person a while back, and he was not uh, speaking directly to me, but uh, speaking in my presence, I, I couldn't help from hearing what he said, and, and had first understood 
a little bit about what he was talking about, then his response was to the person he's talking about and to his comment for this person to take his comment to another and said, tell him, be sure uh, to understand that Romans 8.28 still in the book. Romans 8.28 had not in it, not a thing to do with what he was talking about. And I said to the preacher in whom that person spoke to, I said, you mean he, he feels Romans 8.28 covers that? Be sure, he said, and tell the person now. Romans 8.28 still in the book. And that, that would sidetrack. But I don't want to get go in detail about what he said. But uh, people's approach sometimes, in my understanding, to Romans 8.28. Now, what I'm going to talk about tonight, I'm going to call it the comforting truth of Romans 8.28. But before we look at the comforting truth, I want you to think with me about what I call some confusing talk about Romans 8.28. You hear a lot of confusing talk. It's not comforting truth. It's not something that encourages you. I mean, it's it's coming from a, a standpoint of confusion. And I think trying to stand on it without understanding it, and, and really when it doesn't uh, cover that. For instance, and I, won't, I don't want to get sidetracked, I want to get to the comfort and truth here, but uh, I, I hear people, and, and I won't give any plug tonight, but there are groups, really, you, if you pick up their literature and you listen at them preach, they, they approach it like this, and they'll tell you that Romans 8.28 says that only good happens to God's people. And they mean by that, that if you qualify at Romans 8.28, there is no quote-unquote bad ever happens to you. There is no adversity. Never any setback. Never any sickness. They they approach it like that. For instance, I, I heard a, overheard another person, and this was a lady in the church not very long ago, and she was in the foyer, and they were she was speaking to the pastor. I, he wanted me to be there at the door with it, and they was making reference to an accident that a lady in that church was involved in. And you know what her comment was? She said, "If that were me, and I was in an accident, the first thing I would do, I would really check up to see." Or I'd got wrong. Her implication, if you're right with God, you couldn't be in an accident. Preacher told me later about her background and said she's so locked into that. I mean, if there's ever any adversity, any sickness, any, 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 anything happens from the standpoint that she doesn't, uh, you know, interpret quote unquote as good. And here's a person involved in an automobile accident, and the person is landed in the hospital and rather seriously uh, uh, injured in that in that automobile accident. And her rather bold and even brazen manner was, "If that were me, first thing I'd do, I'd find out where I got wrong with God to be involved in that." You see the thinking? I, I spoke with a person some time back. He's a preacher. And his approach is, and that's why it got me to really thinking about it, his approach to Romans 8.28 is like that, that, you know, there's no adversity, there's no illness, there's no setback, you never have any problem with your family, there'll never be any problem with your children. If you qualify, if you're God's people, and he talks about in Romans 8.28, it's always only good happens. And I listened to him for a few minutes, and my iris raised the question. I said, how do you approach the book of Job? You know what he said to him? He said, who? <laughs> I said, Job, you've heard of him. Oh, yeah. He said, well, 
he, he said, well, I, I got an interpretation for it. And I thought, so I expect you have. No, God said about Job that Job was a good man. And God even bragged on Job to the devil. Even said to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil had. And the devil responded to God and said, you've hedged him in. But the point is, God said, Job, he, he fears me, serves me. He, he's, he stews evil. He shuns evil. He gets away from evil. Job's a good man, God's saying. But I raised a question to him. Did good always happen to Job? Boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Lost ten children at one time. Wealthiest man of his day. And he's reduced to, to a, a, virtually to a bankrupt overnight. And yet, he's a good man. He's God's man. So to try to interpret Romans 8.28 to suggest that Romans 8.28 saying if you're God's people and you fit in this category that he talks about in Romans 8.28 and to say that God says only good happens, then that to me is confusing talk. That's not comforting truth. But there is another approach. They don't hardly put it like that. But uh, they say this. Now listen, they, they'll say, well, bad things do happen to God's people, but they just appear to be bad. In reality, they're good. But they give the appearance that it's bad. Well, it wasn't just the appearance of being bad in Job's life. Things that happened to him were bad. What about Joseph that we read about earlier? That didn't just appear to be bad. That was evil and that was wrong. And even though God being the kind of God that he is that's in sovereign control, he can step in and cause the wrath of man to praise him any day he wants to. But they were still responsible for their evil. And they knew it. And God held them responsible. It didn't just appear to be evil in Joseph's life. It was evil then when it happened and it's still evil. There's another crowd. They say, well, now listen carefully. Here's where some of us, we may be a little confused. Now, I'm not a smart aleck to know it all, but you may dis differ with me here. I suspect there was a time I kind of thought Romans 8.28 was saying what I'm about to suggest tonight that I don't believe it's saying. So it's obvious to me that the crowd that says only good happens to God's people, it's confusing talk. And, and when they say it just appears to be bad, I know of a good family, godly family, a drunk man ran over their little boy and killed that little fella. That was evil. That was bad. That didn't just appear to be bad. That is bad. And it happened to good people, God's people. So you can put that in the category of confusing talk also. Not only, it's not that... Just good happens to God's people, and it's not that it just appears to be bad, but in reality it's good. But here's that third and final, I won't go any further on this, just mention this. You know what there's some folks says about Romans 8.28, and that's why I need your undivided attention now. They put it like this. They say, oh yeah, we agree, bad things do happen. But they say eventually the bad things become good things. God says in Romans 8.28, that bad thing that happened to you, one day I'll turn it in and make it good. Well, that's confusing talk also. It doesn't say that. God doesn't say that bad, evil thing that happened in your life. One day that thing itself will be good. That's not what he says. 
It was evil when it happened to Joseph. It's still evil. It'll always be evil. The meanness of his brothers never will become good. Romans 8.28 is not saying one day those bad things eventually becomes good things. It doesn't say that. That drunk man that killed that little boy was bad when it happened. It's bad tonight. It'll always be bad. So what is Romans 8.28 saying? Well, let's just, uh, that's enough of the confusing talk, amen. I, I prefer to get to the what I'm calling the comfort and truth. I want to just, it's so simple, I almost re- refrain from approaching it tonight. But I want to suggest to you out of this one verse, five simple suggestions as we attempt to stand on the promise, God's promise for hard times. And Let me just put it in a little form so it'll be easily remembered tonight. And I want to suggest, first of all, what I'm calling the compass of the promise. Or if you prefer, you may want to call it the completeness of the promise. And I mean by the compass of the promise. When I say compass, I'm talking about the range. I'm talking about the boundary. I'm talking about the reach of the promise. I mean, how far does this promise reach? How far does it extend? The compass of it. You say, Brother Hurts, you don't know what I'm going through. Well, think with me. A-L-L. All things. I didn't write that. I'm just reading it tonight. You say, but you don't know what I'm going through. A-L-L. That's the compass of it. That's the range of it. That's the boundary of it. Yes, it If you know, we'll find out in a minute the chosen people, not just the compass, the promise, but we're down the line. We're going to talk about the chosen people of this promise. Who is it that fits in this promise? If you find yourself in that group tonight, the compass of the promise that God is sending you tonight is A-L-L. Even that heartbreak you're going through now, that disappointment you're going through right now, That situation you find yourself in, you say, but it don't look like it's going to be good. Well, he didn't say it looks that way. He says, we know. Notice how he puts it. I preach a sermon sometime entitled it, Paul's Certainties. I go to about four or five places in the Bible where, no question mark, where Paul says, we know, we know, we know this earthly house, if it's dissolved, we know we've got to build it. We know all things work together. We know this, we know that, Paul said. And here's one of Paul's certainties. He says, you can know this. You can just put it down for sure that all things. So that's the compass of the promise. The second word tonight is second suggestion, not only the compass of the promise, but uh, I want to take a little expression apart here. And uh, and I'm aware that uh, even when you do a word study, it runs together. But I'm taking the liberty to break it up in words here tonight. And I'm talking about the compass of the promise. Then secondly, I want you to think with me about this suggestion. I call it the continuation process. Now use that word work. Don't draw a conclusion tonight about what's happening in your life. And say this is the end. You don't run up on Joseph. How long did that go on before God elevated him? 13, 14 years or so? You don't end up on him when he was being rejected and bitterly treated with all of their hatred and rejection and lands up down yonder in Egypt and then uh, though God was with him and he's standing true to God, but things didn't appear to be going good for Joseph. He was forgotten in prison. He was slandered and lied upon. And 
All of the mistreatment. Had you run up on Joseph? Why, I don't think I'm over left field in my imagination tonight to say there was nights he went to sleep with a question mark. He's human. He's alone. He's long ways from home. The enemy would suggest to him, where's your God? You'd have, could have encountered him and interviewed him. You'd have said, just assuming you know he knew Romans 8.28 and that truth. Oh, he'd say to you, it doesn't look that way, does it? But you see, there was a process going on. He didn't understand it. There's one going on in your life tonight that you don't have the end picture yet. And when Romans 8.28 says, and we know that all things, all things is the compass of the promise, but all things work, that's the continuation process that, that these experiences and events, they, they set loose a process in our life, and God is at work in the midst of them, and He hasn't brought us to the end of it yet. Not only do I suggest the compass, the promise, the continuation process, but the third suggestion, I call it the connection principle tonight. It's in the word together. Together. Is it fair? It's one of the word studies. I think fair when I put this together, looking at it. He, he suggests with some insight that word there, Thayer, Thayer says together. It means to be a partner in labor with. A partner in labor with. God goes to work in the midst of what's going on in your life. And can write and say to us about the finished product. Listen, all things, the compass of the promise I'm going to let you stand on. It involves everything that's happening in your life. Because there's a continuation process. And there is a connection principle that I'm taking and I'm working some experiences together and the things that's happening, God says, I'm putting them together and I'm going to bring about an end product in your life. I'm a baker by trade. Some of you know that. Uh, that's my background. We as a family owned a bakery at one time. That was the work I was doing when I left outside employment and went full-time in the ministry. I baked for the finance center building uh, for the United States Army in Indianapolis, Indiana, Fort Benjamin Harrison, just outside of the city. Baked for 5,000 people. Our civilian employee, we contracted work from the government, and we did the baking there for the finance center group. 5,000 is my responsibility to do the baking, and of course had, had workers there with us. And so we contracted to work from them and, and, and made sure they had the, the, the baked products. We did the, uh, the, the rolls, uh, dinner rolls, and we did cakes and pastries and pies, and especially when I guess the, uh, the biggest, uh, of our business there was the, was the, the breakfast hour. We did Danish pastries for the breakfast and donuts, of course, and, and things like that. And, and one, one week, uh, one day of the week, which was on Friday, uh, we didn't make so much pastry. We made uh, buttermilk biscuits and gravy. Uh, it's my responsibility to make biscuits for 5,000 people. <laughs> the fellow said to me, and I mentioned that some time ago, he said, well, I bet you had to use about 10 pounds of flour, didn't you? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can tell he hadn't made any biscuits, amen. <laughs> Not for 5,000 people. And I said, yes, uh, five, uh, 10 pounds and a whole lot of 10 pounds, too. <laughs> And, you know, I'm talking about a connection principle. I'm talking about working something together. I'm talking about coming out with a, a pleasing product. But you ever think about what goes in a biscuit? You cooks know. Start with your flour. I'm talking about you have to put something together to get something that's patable and tasty. 
It's not very palatable. It's not tasty. If you take them as individual ingredients, flour, why, there's no taste. It's bland. I started to say shortening. They, I didn't use shortening. They wouldn't let you. See, that's been my, that's been how many years? That's been, that's been, uh, what, 30, 30, over 30 years ago now. I've been in preaching. I hate to admit that. I've been preaching nearly 40. And it's been, what, 35 years. And, uh, but uh, they wouldn't let us do that now, I don't guess. But I, I use lard. You cooks and bakers know good lard to make a better biscuit than this, this vegetable shortening well. Good lard will. Of course, they'll tell you today, lard will kill you. <laughs> I mean, about everything I was raised on, it'll kill you now. Amen. <laughs> I heard Dr. Tom Malone Sr. say some time ago, he said, you know, that urgent, worn-out, gravelly voice of his, Dr. Malone's with him, what is he, 90-year-old now? Dr. Malone said, well, in this age we're in now, why, there's nothing hard you can eat, it'll kill you. <laughs> He said, I was raised in North Alabama. My, grand, my grandparents raised me. He said, was raised on pork. He said, they tell you now, pork will kill you. <laughs> he said, I got to thinking. He said, uh, I get maybe something to it. He said, uh, that's probably what killed my grandpa and my grandma. He said, it got grandpa at 95 and grandma at 96. I'm sure that's what killed them. <laughs> Why, they hadn't had pork, no tell how long it had lived, he said. <laughs> But we'd take that lard and we had them big walk-in freezers and, and, and that would be sliced and it would be, you know, and flake-like. And, and so you didn't have to, you do a lot of mixing on your biscuits and, and you won't get much of rice. So just so you can stir them, you put lard in them. You ever try to taste lard? We used the leveling for it. Since I had uh, buttermilk, I needed something to counter the sourness. So I had to use some soda, used baking powder, used cream of tartar. One of the other bakers, when he'd have to do it, he'd come to me. He'd call me Hurt. He said, Hurt, what do you do to your biscuits? I don't. said, uh, they're always saying, your biscuit's not as light as that other baker's. <laughs> what he didn't know, I dropped a little yeast in mine. <laughs> not enough to make them like a dinner roll, but enough to give them a little kick. And they'd jump up there like that. Uh, did you ever taste yeast bit stuff? It's a slimy thing. <laughs> You ever taste cream of tartar, baking powder, soda, salt? I use a little bit of sugar to give it a balance, not enough to make them sweet, but just a balance. And then work that together. Put it through, uh, what, 450 of them for about 15 minutes. We had for folks that didn't eat uh, sausage gravy, had to have a little chipped beef gravy, but I preferred the sausage, amen, <laughs> and put you some sausage gravy on. Man, I'm getting hungry, amen. <laughs> See, some of us tonight, we're in the midst of something, but we're not letting him take that connection principle. Let him give him a little time. Let him be God in your life. Don't get bitter at him. Don't listen to the devil that tells you, you know, God's not fair. God's not good. If God was good, you wouldn't have been treated like you're being treated. You wouldn't have, they wouldn't have mistreated you at that place. They wouldn't have, they, they, that wouldn't have happened if God was good. See, I know what the enemy says to you. But you just just be still. Uh, I preach a series out of the Psalms sometime, getting to know God. And one of them, if you're going to know God, there has to be some stillness involved. Be still and know that I'm God. And the word still doesn't mean just, it involves, I think, being quiet. But I'm told by those Hebrew students, helps me understand the Scripture. It's really saying, you know, just back off, relax, take your hands off of it. You don't have to get involved. Be still as if you've got to get into it. Let God be God. And you'll know God. You'll know that He is God when it's all over. 
And so tonight, if you're in the midst of something, and the enemy is saying to you, God's not good, he's not fair. Why, if God was a good, gracious, loving God, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. God's promise says, there's the compass of that promise, that's all things. There is that process that's going on, that continuation process. He, he's still working on me, as the song said. And, and, and we need to let him be God in that sense. And there is that connection principle. He's putting some things together. I was in an area, I thought of this this afternoon, and it was in one of the areas of our country that been in the news in just recent days. My wife asked me last night, she said uh, she named two or three places in eastern Kentucky and over in the, right across the line in, not West Virginia, but south of West Virginia, uh, up there in, in, in the area. You may have seen it on the news where all that flooded. I said, mine, I, I, I said, I'll need to call and get home and I preach at a number of churches up in there. But this is in a little another area back in the Kentucky side, back in the, oh, it's mountainous. It's, one preacher friend calls it the missionary country up there we go to, so. There's a church. My, how God has blessed that church. Preacher, a touch of God, a broken man of God. God blessing everything they were doing, walking with God, and, and they were in a building, they filled their building up, they built onto it, just sort of, they had no resources hardly, just sort of like a lean-to, and they built again, expanded, and, and the thing wasn't supposed to seat less than a hundred. Now, there's probably way up nearly 200 people coming from all around those little areas, and God's got His hand, and they're crying out to God with brokenness. They're having special prayer meetings, praying for God to just give them some, as he put it, some resources so that they can, they can add on. They, and they got a spot of ground. They want to build a more permanent building there. Well, there was a storm. When that storm went through there, what, two, three years back, I was in Oregon. My wife was with me out there. And since it's three hours time difference, we've been out to lunch and we came back in. We turned CNN News on. And I said, look at this. This is a live picture. And it was Niceville, Tennessee. Remember that storm hit right downtown? Those big buildings were swaying and it touched down on up in the state and touched down across the state line. And they were telling about it. I said, my, I preach up through there. It touched down through that community. And the only thing that it really, in that particular area, it just dropped down and got their church building and, and, and blew everything away. He was broken hearted. He said, oh my, we don't have a building now. They had no insurance to speak of. Just, just, you know, building wasn't worth all that much. They built a little on there as they went. And he said, no insurance or nothing. Now we won't have anything. We have a place to meet. I've preached there a couple of times since then. Oh, I tell you, you're talking about a beautiful auditorium sitting there. <laughs> Fully paid for. Beautiful pews. Such an adequate building. He can't talk about it for weeping. <laughs> he said, just to think, the enemy got me almost bitter over it. Said, I walked the floor that first night and, and almost getting upset with God. He said, Lord, after all, the building wasn't worth much, but it was a building. We could, we had somewhere to get in. And now you've blown the thing away. <laughs> and he said, all the time, God's wanting to put up a new building for us. Churches heard about that. You couldn't believe. I know of one particular place in a preacher's meeting 
They, with a broken heart, that director talked about it. One man stood up and said, we'll send 25,000. Another said 20. Another said 25,000. Anonymous gift. More than that came from somewhere and said, God knows where it came from. We, you don't need to know. And got it to them. And they paid for it, paved their parking lot, and had some money left over. And said, oh. he said, preacher, I almost got bitter when God was wanting to bless me. So listen, there's a connection principle. God puts things together. Ah, don't uh, look at circumstances and draw a conclusion just on your circumstances tonight. So I've talked about the compass of the promise, all things. I've talked about the continuation process, something's at work. I've talked about the connection principle tonight. There's that principle together, bringing things together. Then there's the chosen people. There's two sides to their experience. There's the divine side here, and then there's the human side of their experience. They're said to be the people who are called of God. We might use the word tonight to express that call, use the word conviction. The drawing, when God awakens you by His Spirit of your of your lostness, you, you're not capable of doing that. God's Spirit does that. And brings you under what we call conviction. And you become aware, I'm a lost sinner. I'm in trouble. I've sinned against the Holy God. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Salvation is of the Lord tonight. And He does all of that. And that's why it's so important for us as believers to be walking with Him so His power is free, so He can work through us to talk to people. So there's the call. Can you... Are you in that number tonight? Can you remember a time you'd say, yes, preacher, I, oh, I knew I, be, I, I, I was aware of my lostness and I knew I was on my way to hell. And that call, that conviction, that drawing, and you can't come unless you experience that. That's the, that's the divine side of the experience of these chosen people. But then he brings into focus a human side of that experience. And he not only says they're the call, but Notice who he says. He says uh, uh, th- these these things works for good to them that love God. See, when the Bible talks about love and us loving God, it's more than just some emotional experience or a feeling. Jesus said, "If you love me, keep my commandments." And he's saying, "If if you love Him, this love will be demonstrated by a life of obedience." There's people sometimes, oh yeah, I love God. And they, they never go to church. They, they're not, they never, they don't have a prayer life. They never read the Bible. They have no stewardship. They don't think a thing about any of that. And yet they are talking about, oh yeah, I love God. Well, I have no right to say I'm the people of God, loving God, unless that love is being demonstrated in my life, at least by an effort of obedience to Him. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And John would write later and say, his commandments is not grievous. They're not burdensome. Well, when you love someone, it's not a chore for you to do something for that person that you love. See, I was a church member for years, but I didn't have any relationship with God. And I'd have told you I was a Christian. But I was not a Christian. My wife would have told you she was a Christian. And she'd have told you she'd been a Christian since all of her life. She was a a lost church member, a Roman Catholic, and I was a lost Baptist. But tonight, I I said one time, where was that in Dallas preaching? I was talking about I was a church member, and I said, uh, 
I was a, I was a Baptist, lost Baptist church. A young fellow came up to me after He said, what kind of church are you a member of now? And I said, Baptist. <laughs> he said, what's the difference? I said, I'm a saved Baptist. That makes a difference. Amen. Oh, listen to me. Folks, it's sometimes that Jesus going to say when he comes. And it's shocking when you think about it. He didn't say a few. He said many is going to say. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. See, he didn't say, I knew you once, but I forgot you. and let, No, that doesn't happen. And yet religious people feeling they knew him. And, and as I said, it's serious business. And he says, the people... Whom can stand on this promise are a people that fit into the called. And then they can find the evidence in their own life. They love me. And Jesus said that love will be evidenced in a life of obedience. I've talked about the compass of the promise, the continuation process. I've talked about the connection principle and the chosen people. But I close by just suggesting the fifth simple suggestion is what I call the concluding purpose. He says not only their call, but it's it's the called according to his purpose. Now, what is the purpose of Romans eight twenty eight? Well, Romans eight twenty nine tells us he his goal, his purpose is this to conform those he's talking about in Romans eight twenty eight to the image of his son, making us like Christ. That's why I want to read about Joseph. I'd raise the question tonight, who do you think is the most Christ-like person in the Old Testament? Many of you would quickly respond with the word Joseph. And I would agree with that. Oh, when you're reading about Joseph, you immediately feel you're in the presence of someone that's behaving like our Lord. And this text says that when... uh, the people of God that Romans 8, 28 is talking about is being conformed to the image of his son. It, then it brings him into a, a position that he, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's an Old Testament image and term that firstborn was a term of honor. Uh, the firstborn was in that honored position. And he's to put it simplified. He's saying, oh, when we permit him to bring us and make us Christ-like, it brings more honor to Christ himself. He receives glory. I people say to me sometimes, what to be conformed to his image, and one day that will be complete. That's a process and the work that's going on now. And a person said someone had told him that meant that, you know, that we, uh, we'll have an attribute of deity. And I said, oh no, it doesn't mean that. We never, we never become quote unquote but little gods and, it doesn't mean that all we're going to be, we're going to take on attribute of deity. And in my understanding, it does not mean also that we have his facial resemblance. I mean, everybody in, in their facial resemblance looks like him. That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about we're going to be like him morally. We'll be sinless. We'll have a glorified body one day like his. We're going to be changed. But you see, God's up to causing some people here now to become Christians, to be like Him, to bring more glory to Him. In that experience, if we'll just let God be God, instead of it making us bitter, oh, some of the most Christ-like people I've ever been around in my life has been some people that's gone through some storms and some hard places. And they just, they didn't, they, they didn't resent it. They didn't rebel against it. They didn't try to run from it. They just said, you be Lord. And I tell you, when you're around them now, you're around someone that 
you just know you're in the presence of someone that's walking and that's even like our Lord. Because that experience is bringing them to that concluding purpose. That it's bringing them to the image of His Son. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.